10% of U.S. companies are capable of delivering a, a complete customer experience that exceeds expectations. I mean, it, it, it's very difficult to do, despite the fact that everybody understands that if you can do it, there's tremendous benefit that accrues from being able to pull that off. Thank you for listening. This is Brett Trainer, your host for Hardwired for Growth, a podcast where we strive to help entrepreneurs and business owners not only grow their businesses, but scale them. We do this by having conversations with industry experts and the entrepreneurs who have successfully scaled their own businesses. Statistics show that only 5% of all startups ever achieve annual revenue of a million dollars and less than 1% reach 10 million. Our mission is to help more than double the number of companies that reach each of those thresholds. The voice you heard a moment ago is Dan Wine. Dan is a serial entrepreneur who has successfully landed multiple businesses on the Inc. 500 list, including his first startup that landed number one on that coveted list. In addition to being an entrepreneur, Dan is also the author of Second Stage Entrepreneurship, 10 Proven Strategies to Drive Aggressive Growth, and is also a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review. I highly encourage you to pick up a copy of, of Dan's book. In today's conversation, we discuss Dan's experience leading fast-growing companies and the lessons he's learned. This is a great episode for founders and entrepreneurs who want to hear from someone that has fought the battles and has scaled multiple companies. Questions we answer today are why Dan leveraged an advisory board with each of his startups and the value they provided, why investing in marketing and demand generation early is critical to high growth, why Dan has changed his mind and now believes sales and marketing should be aligned under one leader, why it's critical to hire the right person for that initial sales role, why insights from an industrial organizational psychologist helped him drastically improve his hiring decisions, and why less than 10% of companies can execute on end-to-end customer experience. Plus, we get into much, much more. Now, on to the intro. You're listening to Hardwired for Growth, a podcast dedicated to helping entrepreneurs and business owners who are looking for sustainable and scalable growth strategies, led by your host, Brett Trainer. Hey, Dan, welcome to the show. Well, Brett, it's a privilege and an honor to be invited. So thanks. If you're at a cocktail party, how would you describe to people what you do? Well, there's a lot of different answers to that question, of course, depending on who I'm talking to, which is part of what I would tend to think, focus on. But in answering the question directly, right now I'm a, a director at Mentor Group, which is a London-based sales effectiveness business. I'm helping them uh, execute a U.S. expansion strategy, hopefully on the way to something bigger in terms of a more holistic sales effectiveness strategy. So that is what I do right now. They use technology, process people, and they help clients drive more rapid revenue growth. So, awesome. Yeah, and I'm sure that'll be end up being successful. And you know what, and can kind of segue into, you know, why I wanted you on the show today, I think is one, the book you wrote, Second Stage Entrepreneurship, right? As you know, my, my audience is mostly folks that have hustled their way to scale. And now they're looking to really scale and accelerate the growth in their business. And a lot of the time we talk about is you have to have a plan, right? And what I really found in your book was that blueprint, right? You go into great detail about the planning process. So, and not only that, the book was born out of the success you've had actually scaling companies. So there's a couple avenues we could go, but first. And some of the challenges and problems, both were good teachers. So. (laughs) No, I think you're right. I think the learnings definitely come from the failures more than the success. And you're right. I think, you know, as we were chatting off, off air a little bit, it's, it's probably never 
been, I don't know, would you say it's easier in some areas and more difficult to get to that scale level today than it was, you know, six years ago, 10 years ago? You know, I think it's more difficult. Uh, the, the markets move more quickly. I mean, I think back one of the companies I started, I raised $25 million on a PowerPoint. And that was in 2003. You really can't do that today. You actually have to have a business that has some legs before you can get capital. Unless you're a 25-year-old technology entrepreneur, that might be an exception. But for most of the rest of us in the real world, it's, it's more difficult. And the other thing that I think is a lot harder is you just can't pick up the phone and call people anymore like you used to be able to do. If people don't know who's calling, they don't answer the phone, they don't answer emails. So it's harder to reach out to people you don't know, which is a big part of the early stage of a business. Right. And I think that's one of the questions I had for you leading off was, you know, it's your, I think there's 10 steps or 10 areas to successfully. Ten proven strategies. <laughs> Sorry, I did read the book in preparation of this, even though you may not be able to tell that. But uh, the, the 10 proven strategies, I found it interesting that you let off with board of advisors and capital versus product or product market fit and some of the other areas you talk about in the, in the book. Yeah, I don't know that there's any particular order that has to be. I mean, you need an idea, but it, 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 once you have an idea, I think probably the first thing is to have a plan. And the book really assumes that a plan is a given and you've, you've already had some demonstrated success. I mean, you've proved the concept out and now you want to grow. So what do you do if you want to grow? And so then I suggest that there's 10 strategies that are important to grow. It's not meant to be the end all because everything can't be boiled down to 10 things. Some of those strategies are more important than others. Some are more appropriate at a given point in time than others, but it gets down to the things that I feel are important to drive growth. All the businesses that I started, for example, had an advisory board literally on day one. As the business was formed, we had already assembled an advisory board. Now, that may have changed, and we may have swapped people in and out over the course of the business, but it was, in fact, in play on day one. Now, part of that is based on the fact that I got money from others in all these businesses that I started. So we had, in one case, a family office, and the other two cases, a private equity firm. So they're going to be supportive of the idea of assembling advisors early on. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's what I was going to ask you to dig a little deeper into. What is the value? So if I'm a startup, I've had some success now. I think I've proven the idea. There's definitely the product market fit. And I'm going to look at raising some capital. Should I look at the advisory board first versus the investment or looking or the other way around? It probably is a sort of a parallel path. Uh, if you're going to raise money from an institution, they'll want to have an input input on who the board of advisors, what that's comprised of and what they look like. If you're going to friends and family, uh, it's probably helpful to have an advisory board in advance. I was on the phone earlier today with a, a guy that I know well, who's got a nice little technology business. He doesn't have scale at this point. He's trying to raise uh, half a million to a million dollars, but he has four advisory board members already in place. Each of them has written a small check uh, that'll be convertible to equity in the, the first institutional round, but he does have these people, they have expertise and skill and contacts that he doesn't have today on his own. So okay. I applauded him for, for doing it that way. You know, it may change if he gets an institutional investor, they may swap those folks out and put on some of their own. I've been on some boards like that where the day that the institutional investor came in, I was asked to leave. So I didn't <laughs> think it's personal. Um, I still... 
I'm still friends with the CEO. I may not know the new investor. Right. Nothing's ever personal in business, right? <laughs> well, sometimes it is. Yeah, unfortunately, right? The other area I did want to dig into, because I think you were actually maybe a little bit ahead of your time when you were talking about the new model for selling, right, is, you know, the digital world, the internet, you know, and some of the companies you reference is I think we're on the leading edge. And the, why, the reason why I say I think you were ahead of your time is a lot of companies are still struggling with this, this model today, right? Some of my time is spent with what I would call legacy B2B companies or more mature B2B companies and their, their models and go to market is really outdated. So kind of that, you know, what you outlined was kind of that the data driven, right? Customers, you, you mentioned earlier, nobody picks up the phone. So how are you getting in front of these customers? So maybe you could dig into a little bit, you know, what your idea of that new model selling is. Well, we could spend the rest of the time talking about this, but we, we won't. I'll, I'll cover it pretty quickly. So all of us have sort of a, a path that we came up in the world. And in my case, that came up through the path of sales. I learned as I was scaling businesses, probably the hard way, that, that I didn't invest soon enough or large enough in marketing. Uh, and that was really before the whole world of demand generation really existed. But even in those businesses, marketing proved to be far more important than I initially thought. I had one marketing leader pretty early on in my career who was smart enough to quantify all of the return that came from marketing. And it was a huge ROI, uh, revenue well in advance of what we invested in marketing that uh, ended up being put on the books. In, in the world today, it's changed quite a bit in that the, the world of sales, at least in my view, now includes marketing, it includes demand generation. And it includes customer success. All these functions have converged. A sales organization can only do so much if they don't have demand generation. And demand generation isn't really something that is a true sales function. It really is more marketing. So the way I look at it, it's this whole ecosystem, which is why you now see the rise of the, the chief growth officer, or the chief commercial officer, titles like that. And it's that's changed quite a bit in five years. In my book, I suggested strongly that you shouldn't have the same executive oversee sales and marketing because they're different disciplines. Now, part of that is true that they're different disciplines, but if you don't have somebody connecting and aligning sales with marketing, it's going to be a big mess. And so you, you somehow have to figure out how to do both well and get them to interface seamlessly. And that's very different than the world I came from where sales always hated marketing and vice versa. It doesn't work anymore. Yeah, no, we speak the same language. I kind of grew up in the sales organization, spent some time in demand gen. And, you know, my, my feelings have flipped almost 100% that way that with the modern buyer and their expectations and the way they want to buy, you have to have, you know, one, I think branding is going to be even more important in the B2B world than it was even five years ago because people can have some awareness of you. Then two, you know, your digital engagement is, is going to be key because you can't just muscle your way with outbound cold calling and, and hit revenue targets. It's just really expensive and it's uh, highly in, inefficient. I think I saw a stat that less than 2% of cold calls result in leads, right? So now there's some... The price is that high, frankly. I mean, I mean, it's sort of funny. Today, I was on a call with a, a private equity partner and, you know, these guys are pretty smart. And one of, they just fired the CMO of one of their portfolio companies because the, the CMO was an old brand marketing person and didn't understand the world that you, you know well and is important now with just demand gen. Totally different. Yeah. And you'd appreciate this. So I was 
on a hunt for a, to write a white paper. And it was talking about this very same thing about the different revenue levers, right? Demand gen and looking at it. So I was actually, I had heard this woman, Heather Combs on a different podcast and she was introduced as a true chief revenue officer. And so I, I wanted to reach out just to make sure that she did own sales, marketing and service. And she actually did. Now she had strong functional leaders in each of those areas, but the way she explained how it improved the efficiency of the organization where they're making, you know, investments within the company was so much less painful because you didn't need the ref the CEO to referee, you know, where the, the operating budgets are going to go. Yeah. So that's a whole new world uh, that's come about of, of late. So. And that's, and that's kind of what I'm encouraging the audience to think about is, is you're building out your strategy. I've got some, you know, I've raised some money now I'm going to go hire 50 salespeople without having the marketing or the demand generation engine would be, you know, counterintuitive. So yeah, good luck to you, right? <laughs> right. You'll burn through that cash pretty quick. So yeah, I know definitely we could talk about this and we do, I've had a couple of different guests focused on this area, but it's definitely an, an area to, uh, to think about. I think the other area you, you wrote quite a bit about is the uh, culture and leadership, right? How that changes as you start to scale the organization and you go from the doer to the overseer and maybe you could uh, unpack that a little bit and talk about some of the, the lessons learned or best practices you would recommend to, to folks as they're starting to ramp up. Yeah, it's, a, it's analogous, I think, to the, the world that exists between a salesperson and a sales leader. And that'll start there and then maybe take, take it more to a broad-based leadership role. So a salesperson is really motivated by achievement and a good sales leader is motivated by influence. Occasionally, the sales individual has uh, influence competencies and can make a transition effectively to leading a sales team and beyond, but not always. Okay. And some of the very, very strongest salespeople aren't very good at sales leadership because when push comes to shove, they want to do it themselves. And you see a similar arrangement play out in the entrepreneurial world. So there are, there's more than a few entrepreneurs that are akin to the, the sales professional, the individual contributor that are wired for achievement. But once a business gets to a given scale and they have to hire a team, they actually have to change and allow that team to drive the function that they've been hired and empowered to lead. And if the entrepreneur doesn't have the ability to step back and to let the team run the business, of course, with his or her guidance, you have the same sort of scenario that plays out with an ineffective sales leader. The effective leaders that this entrepreneur may have hired get frustrated and find it to be a difficult environment and ultimately leave. So, I mean, to a certain extent, it's, it's hard because to get an early stage business to have traction, the entrepreneur has to be involved in everything and be singularly focused on getting success. But then at a point in time, step back and let others do it. And it's not an easy thing for many to do. No. Some succeed and some fail. I think that's right. And what you get into the book in a little more detail as well is, is having a plan for that process and making it clear not on expectations necessarily, but what, what that person's being brought in to do and what success looks like. And I see too many businesses that just bring in really good people, but there's just not clarity on, you know, what they're supposed to be doing and direction. And, you know, to your point, ends up leaving a company, which can really hurt when you don't have that, your staff just isn't that big. 
And sometimes people come, they've spent a life in big companies where you have resources for everything. I think of in one business where I hired a number of partners from big four firms. And, and they live in a world that most people don't, where all the work comes to them. It's not as though they don't sell, but it's really different than working for a no-name brand company where there's no momentum, no leads, no help, and every leader has to be good at five different things or they're going to fail. And some people from big companies can make that transition and do well, but uh, someone could be awesome at one of these firms and just completely fail abysmally in an entrepreneurial environment where the resources and benefits that accrue to a big company just don't exist. Any tips on how to avoid that as you go through the process? I'm, excited, I'm guessing you're not saying don't hire those folks that have come from that, but just validate that they can operate in a, a different world. I had a whole chapter on hiring in the book, and that's probably more than anything born out of the school of hard knocks. <laughs> I started when I first left General Electric, I, I tried to hire salespeople in the same way that I did there for this new entrepreneurial company. And I was getting half wrong, which uh, at a million dollars minimum per mistake, it's pretty expensive. <laughs> so I wasn't going to survive unless I figured it out. So I actually reached to the outside and got help from an industrial organizational psychologist. This was back in 1987, and I still use this guy today. We did a project that uh, is not all that complicated once you know what they do, but we assessed the entire team of salespeople, figured out what were the competencies that correlated with success, and then tried to build a hiring process that, to the best of our ability, made sure we got people who displayed the critical success factors. You can do a very similar thing in leadership roles where you take the time to define, well, what's important for this role? What are the skills and competencies that are going to make or break it? And then make sure you get granular on a hiring process that's going to vet whether that person has that particular skill set and are they going to fit in culturally. And, you know, if you come from a world of command and control, and that works really well because it's a, a huge company where you need that and you go into an entrepreneurial world where things aren't that figured out, right. you're going to have a big disconnect. So that's happened to me as well. Yeah. Now, have, one of the things that I'm seeing, I'm curious to get your opinion as well, the kind of those competencies over, I'd say even the last five to seven years has kind of changed where especially in the inside sales mold and probably even enterprise that are on the phone more than they were where it was that aggressive, outgoing, have no fear type of an approach where in today's world, the, the reps that I see with the most success are more problem solvers and facilitators and, you know, helping the customer get through the buying process as quickly as possible. I, I think it's heading that way. I'm just curious if, you know, in your different ventures, you're seeing the same, same changes. I think it's entirely dependent on the business. Okay. So, for example, I did a project as an individual for a professional soccer team. And the people there were selling season tickets. And there was another group of people selling events and sponsorship. Those people look very different than what software salespeople would look like. And those people look very different than what somebody selling consulting services would look like. And I think that's one of the traps people fall into is they, they don't fully understand the role and the stage of the company's development and to sort of factor that into who they're looking for, for key positions. And they make broad generalizations like, well, I think, I think they need to be more consultative. Well, for some services or for some products, yes, for some, that'd be the case of death. And in this particular season ticket example, for, 
uh, one of the things that surprised me is that people who were really smart didn't do well in that environment. Really? Typically, IQ is an important component in success, but in, in a sort of a transactional sales role, really smart people got frustrated because they didn't have the opportunity to exercise enough creativity. It was bit of a rote process and they, they couldn't do it. Instead, passion about the game of soccer mattered more than IQ. Yeah, that makes sense now that you say it because if you think of, you know, sales is really solving the problem for a customer. And if their problem is, you know, soccer game tickets is very different than a software sale and, you know, the ability to, you know, tie those not t- together, but understanding the needs of each of the buyers is very different. So that's, that's valid. And that's yeah, really even the size of the transaction. So you think of where a firm like NetSuite is today is very different than where they were five years ago when no one heard of them. My guess is that the salespeople in that firm don't look the same today as they did then. Or hopefully they don't. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, but it's, it's, it's a whole different deal. Everybody knows who they are and what they do. My guess is they're pretty different. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And it's kind of a good segue into, you know, another area that I think we share similar views, but we'll find out here in a second. <laughs> you know, the, the approach of the company from a, a marketing and not even a marketing, but a messaging and positioning direction that it's almost critical for any company of any size to get that correct. But I found working with a lot of startups, they would focus, especially a tech startup, you know, they want to lead with features and benefits or my technology has AI where the end customers just didn't care. So really taking the time and, you know, deciding what problems you're solving for the customers, right? And being able to tell that story. You're completely right on what you just pointed out. So the easiest analogy is that if you're going to buy a car and the salesperson is trying to sell you a navigation system, but you don't need navigation because you have it on your phone, you're not going to perceive having nav app or a nav capability on the car as beneficial. You're going to view it opposite. I'm going to pay more for this car than I really need to because I'm getting something I don't need. And the same thing is true in products or services. If you're pitching features or benefits that don't matter to the buyer, it works against you, not for you. So you have to start with discovery and understand what a problem the buyer has and then tailor how you talk about your solution or service or product in a way that solves their problem today not problems they don't have. Right. And I think it has to become an organizational approach, right? Your organization may only be four people, but it's one or two of you and a co-founder. It's easy to have a consistent messaging, but then you start putting in the marketing capabilities and your customer success and your onboarding. And all of a sudden you could very easily be telling, you know, four different stories. And I know one of the chapters in your book talks about, you know, the customer experience. Again, I think you were ahead of your time because now we're just discovering what the real value of that overall customer experience is through the entire life cycle. And you actually went into some pretty good detail. So I'd love you to maybe take a little bit deeper dive into the customer experience piece. I can't remember, this is bad, what the exact statistic is, but it's something like only 10% of of U.S. companies are capable of delivering a, a complete customer experience that exceeds expectations. I mean, it, it, it's very difficult to do, despite the fact that everybody understands that if you can do it, there's tremendous benefit that accrues from being able to pull that off. So, and, and there's many well-known companies that have scaled where the customer experience is horrible. Ultimately, you got to believe that's going to bite them. But I, I mean, my view of the world is that you, you get 
more mileage from the unsolicited referrals than anything else. And so being able to execute on a total customer experience that exceeds expectations is, is a critically important factor for the success in, in most organizations if they're trying to scale. Having a mediocre experience, I mean, it might work in some areas, but I, I, I'd be hard-pressed to come up with one. Right. Well, and I, I think too, on the B2B side, you know, I've been on a rant a couple of times about, you know, how that, that space is going to be ripe for disruption, that there's going to be some very large, mature B2B organizations that are going to be out of business because they weren't able to pivot to the, the customer experience and, you know, kind of the, the buyer demands. And there's going to be a startup or a competitor that figures out how to provide that better end-to-end customer experience is going to, you know, knock them out of business. One example, I won't use the name, but there's a given uh, online hotel booking capability. And I had an issue and I tried to call them and it was absolutely horrific. You know, guess what? There's five others that I can turn to that do the same thing. Uh, they didn't used to be, but now they're Compare that with one I can mention because it's positive is the customer service you'd get from a firm like Amazon. I mean, at their scale to do what they do is impressive. I mean, they pretty much solve problems, no questions asked. At least that's been my experience. Yeah, and the and, and execution too, right? I mean, the example yesterday, I, re, I forgot to order my uh, coffee for the home coffee maker, ordered it at 11 a.m., and it was at my door by 6 p.m. that same day. So I think that's going to be the other one. Get, well, I'm sure think about going without coffee for a day. That'd be horrible. I know. That's why we got the rush order for, well, it's not for free because they pay for Prime, but but the fact that they can actually deliver it is amazing too. And I, it, I'd love to get your opinion on another area that as they compete, I think we've seen it in the B2B or B2C space, that time, like with Uber, they solved a time problem. And a lot of companies that have had some success, well, you can argue success growth at least, is that do you see that happening you know, I know you spent quite a bit of time in the SaaS space with, with some companies. And do you see that as kind of the next evolution, I will, of where the B2B customers are going to be more focused on convenience and ease of use? Or because at least my, it's my belief that I think anything with all the transparency, if you've got an edge in a product, somebody's going to be able to match that fairly quickly. It's, it's really going to be how you execute and, and, and delays, right? Yeah, there, there's certainly exceptions for every sort of generalization. But one of the views I have is that for most uh, B2B SaaS players, services do matter. And that's not really typically part of their business model. They're, they're sort of adherent to the inclusion of services. But that only works if customers are smart enough to figure out how to use your product or service without any help. So I compare a well-known example, Salesforce, which uses outside firms largely for services, whereas Workplace has a $500 million services business. My guess is that it's easier to deal with someone like Workday when services come sort of coupled with the, the software that you would buy. Even what the customer is really buying is not the software. They're trying to buy a solution to a given problem, and people enter into that and make it an important part of the overall equation. I'm not sure I'm going to convince anybody that I'm right about this, but that's certainly my view of the world for most software products. I think of my time at uh, GrowthPlay when we had an assessment offering uh, software, but it needed a heavy dose of services to make it come to life and to make it actionable by our clients. So lots of technologies are really set up that way where you need people as part of it to deliver the full value. And you, if you want adoption and sustained revenue, you actually have to have it solve problems so that 
you get the recurring revenue as you hope over a long period of time. So I don't think the people are going away anytime soon. No, I agree with you. And I think, I think you're, I'd agree with you, at least your assessment on that, because I think when you have partners for non-value add, that makes sense to me. But if this is a value added service, your execution is going to have to be a hundred percent because they're not going to have the same ownership that your internal, the way you can turn control those internal processes. So, yeah, I think you can't go wrong if you focus on the customer, right? Yeah. You have to make sure the customer's happy and that is solving the problem that they're trying to solve at a, at a fair price performance equipment you know, ratio. Yeah, I definitely agree. All right. Is there, you think there's anything else in the book that we, we needed to cover or did we, did I miss anything of the 10 proven strategies? <laughs> One that we didn't touch on is sales management. Okay. Briefly. So, uh, you know, I think about driving success in a sales organization, uh, who you hire is probably the most important thing. If you already have a big team, that's not something you can fix overnight, but you should definitely focus on making sure you have the right talent in place. My experience in the research and data would suggest that most companies can double revenue without any incremental headcount if they just get the talent part of it right. So what the research also suggests is that somebody who's an A player or really good will be 10 times more productive than somebody who's average. And in an early stage business, this is one of the things that's really interesting is somebody who's average can't do it at all. It's too hard. I learned that the hard way more than once. <laughs> I mean, think if you're trying to sell for a no-name company that's early on, you have to be exceptional. Whereas uh, if you're selling in an organization where there's 3,000 people like you and there's a product and brand and momentum and leads, you still have to be good, but you can survive pretty well just by being okay. That won't work at all in an early stage business. So hiring critical, sales management critical, because guess who responsible for hiring people, guess who's responsible for getting them up to productivity, and guess who's responsible for helping them navigate through the ups and downs that come with the life in sales. So that's critically important. And then the, the last thing I would say that is, you know, equipping the sales team to have the right type of conversation when they're in front of clients. That has a huge ROI. Uh, you know, you think that it's easy to have everybody understand the value proposition and deliver the elevator pitch. But if you ask five people to do it, in most companies I've seen, you'll hear five completely different answers. Or even worse, it's just not calibrated for who they're talking to. You know, if you're talking to the CFO, it's one message. The CHRO, it's different. And does the person delivering the message really understand that and, and customize it appropriately? Right. And if they don't get it quickly, right, you lose them. Right. If you confuse them, you lose them. So you don't have much time. I mean. People will form opinions really quickly. Was it Malcolm Gladwell said, well, they, they form an opinion in less than a minute. It's actually in seconds. Yeah. Not actually easy to recover from an initial bad impression. No, I think that Either is. On the phone or in face-to-face. It's, yeah. And a lot of it's just how you, I mean, sometimes you've seen it where a person walks in the door and because of something they did, not even something they said, you're automatically thinking, oh boy, this isn't going to be good. No, I absolutely right. First impressions make it make a difference. And usually the first impressions are, I mean, you, you may not know if it's right because you may not give the person a, a chance for a second impression. Right. And I think to, tying it back to, you know, a growing organization, you, you don't have that many folks. <laughs> so you need the folks you have to be really good at what they do. You know, that, maybe that's it. one more transition to you. I know we're getting short on time, but thinking about who you hire first, right? What's, what's kind of your approach? So if you're really good at sales, 
you know, I always say play to your strength and find people to supplement in other areas, but I'd love to hear your, your, your perspective on this. I, I think it's probably the, the, what I sort of touched on earlier is that every company is different. So understand what's the nature of the sale process, what do customers value, and get really, really granular on what do you need for each uh, type of sales role in your company at a given point in time. Early on, you may only have, say you have five people, you need those people to be able to take it all the way through from a you know, relatively straightforward sale to one that's wildly complicated because you don't really have the ability to have different tiers of your sales organization. As it grows, you may have some people that do the day-to-day field sales and another crew that does global strategic accounts. The skill sets of those people probably aren't the same, but maybe in the first two years, they have to be the same. So you just really have to always be thinking it through in terms of what do I need now at this stage to get me to the next stage. But don't assume because something worked for a year that it's going to work for the next year. Be constantly vigilant and questioning and tweaking as you go. Same would be true, of course, of of demand generation, marketing, changes in the product just because it works great today. If it's awesome, someone's going to figure it out and copy it. So yeah, and it it come from being a first mover, but they don't last. Right. And I think too, to, to, to um, maybe drill in a little bit on that point, that even though you are operating in the moment, you need to be thinking about that next hire now for, you know, you know, in six months or three months or two months, when that demand starts to increase, you can't wait till you get to that point and hire somebody after the fact. I mean, I know there's a delicate balance, but you've always got to be thinking, what, three months ahead, six months ahead? Yeah, in fact, you're right on to a really important point is that if you're, if you're really driving your business well, you should always be recruiting, always be looking for super talented people well in advance of when you need them because it just results in a far better outcome for your business. If you find someone really awesome, find a way to hire him or her. Uh, at that point in time, even if it means pushing out somebody else who who's only you know average, uh, the mistake many people make is they don't start recruiting until they have an opening or they need someone, and then you're under the gun typically, and you end up, in my experience, because <laughs> your expertise, you you make compromises, you settle, and if you settle, it's a bad outcome typically. You no, thrilled and excited about the person on the day they start, or forget about it. Completely agree with you. And I think that's a good one to end on. Always be recruiting, which is, which is so true. And, uh, you know, focusing definitely on the people. So Dan, the way I like to kind of end this is, you know, a little bit of a lightning round where we three questions for you. So the audience gets to know you a little bit, nothing too detailed, but uh, love to get your perspective. So first question is, what do you like to do when you're not helping businesses grow? Uh, I spend time with my family. I like to bike ride and I like to read. I mean, you can a little bit too. <laughs> Just an occasion, all right? Which right. is, this next question I really like is, what is one thing you would highly recommend? And it could be anything. It could be a book, activity, anything. Anything jump into mind? I, I think just sort of a general stay intellectually curious. Always be trying to learn something you don't know. Uh, be it by reading, by, by pushing the envelope, by asking questions of people. Just stay relevant. Be involved. You know, be inquisitive. I think that's great advice. I, I picked that back up a couple of years ago and now I'm consuming more information and research and podcasts than I think I had the previous 10. And it's, you know, it's, it, the world is moving really quick. I think to your point, you really have to. And last call, which actually may tie back to our first question is 
what is your drink or beverage of choice? Well, I like probably wines of all type, but if I had to pick a favorite wine, it'd be a California Cabernet. When it's not appropriate to drink California Cabernet, I'm drinking a big hot coffee in the morning. So yeah, we have similar tastes. <laughs> Americans could get by on uh, on coffee, chocolate, and wine. That's all you need in order to have a healthy lifestyle. The three staples, right? <laughs> all natural. Yeah. yeah, no, that's true. And as long as you don't reverse the order, then I think you're okay. <laughs> I banished soda from my repertoire 15 years ago. I haven't had one since. So it was a very good thing to do. Yeah, you and me both. I think I was drinking, yeah, it's probably been over a decade. I think six Diet Cokes plus a day. And, you know, it was, it took a couple, it took about a week to, you know, get rid of the cravings, if you will. But yeah, no, that's good advice. Dan, anything else you, you think we wanted, we need to discuss before we wrap it up? No, just a pleasure to uh, be with all of you today. And Brett, thanks for inviting me. So much appreciated. Awesome. No, I appreciate it. You, you provided the value. And so if anyone's interested in learning more about you and the work you do, where, where's the best place for people to find you? The mentor group is uh, www.mentorgroup.co.uk. I have a personal website, which has a number of the articles and uh, speeches that I've done, which are available for free, which is www.danweinfurter.com, D-A-N. W-E-I-N-F-U-R-T-E-R.com. Perfect. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes because I'm sure there's a few people that may have missed that spelling. <laughs> so, awesome, Dan. Well, I really appreciate the time and uh, speaking with the audience and we'll catch up with you soon. Okay. Thanks so much, Brett. Thanks, everyone. Change is inevitable. Growth is optional. Solo business owners and small companies need a no-hack business growth solution to cut through the noise. Using the proven ISETT process, Brett helps businesses build stable and reliable growth plans by focusing on what's most important, insight, story, engagement, and talent. To learn more, visit brettrainer.com. You've been listening to Hardwired for Growth. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit brettrainer.com. That's B-R-E-T-T, followed by his last name, T-R-A-I-N-O-R.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.